Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word together, and I pray that you fill us with your spirit. Open our hearts up to you even as we open your word up to us. We give you this morning and this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to begin with an apology. I lied to you last week. Um, I know, I know. I didn't mean to. I told somebody last week that <coughs> last week's sermon was a bit heavy. This week was going to be perky, which, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> but, but since last week started with me talking about deadly paint that changed the course of world history by murdering Napoleon, Perky is like a relative thing. So it's, it's not like it's going to be a comedy routine, but it's going to be not as heavy as last week. But I want to start by talking about a comedian anyway. Um, there's a comedian who's very funny, and one of the things he talks about is the sloppy writing of saying, one thing led to another, and that's sloppy writing. I mean, because there's, there's whole sets of details there. You can sit there and go, you know, um, there was a guy who was a prince. One thing led to another, World War One. You know, it's, it's go, <laughs> that's not the way to do this. You will not find that phrase in any of my books. Having said that, there's, there's a time and a place to say one thing led to another. Um, on Thursday, I was home alone with my dog, and I made myself a really yummy dinner because I'd been working all day, and it was just us, so it was delicious, and I was looking forward to it. One thing led to another, and my dog urinated on my dinner. <laughs> you can understand where, though that screams for some narrative context, I'm not going to give you the details, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to give you the, Suffice it to say, neither of us was happy. He was very confused and upset. I was upset. I had to make myself a whole other dinner. It was not a good evening, and I'm not going to give you the details. Now, the reason I bring all that up to you is because it's actually germane to what we're going to be talking about today. You go, how? It's actually germane to what we're going to be talking about. When your 17-year-old dog unintentionally pees on your food before you can eat it, you have a handful of responses that you can do in return, okay? By the way, do not respond in kind. Um, but you can get really angry with them and go, I worked for like 45 minutes to make myself a special dinner and you screwed it up. Or you can see that he's confused and upset because he didn't intend to. And you can say, I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to love on you. I'm going to moderate my tone because I don't want to upset you all the more. I love you even more than I love the food I never even got to taste because I do. I love my dog more than I love the food he screwed up, right? I hope you can see why I chose the latter rather than the former. I hope most, if not all of you, would go, no, 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 I, that's the right priority. Yes? Now, my question is, why is it often so much easier for us to do that for a puppy than a person? Is it that they're just so inherently cuter, objectively speaking? Is it just that they, they don't know any better, so it's, you don't want to judge them? And thus, because of those sorts of details, they inherently deserve your grace more, right? 
Or is that a contradiction in terms? Somehow with another person. I mean, when you're talking about a puppy, you can sit there and you can feel all gracious and magnanimous, so I'm trying to help. But with another person, with an equal, if I don't respond in anger, if I don't respond in retribution, if I don't respond back, somehow it feels like I'm letting it go, like I'm, I'm letting an equal harm me. I'm, I'm, it's patently unfair to me. To submit to forgiving somebody as they are in the process of wronging you. Surely that's not right. The Bible will never tell us to do that, right? Jesus would never forgive somebody while they are in the process of wronging him, would he? But that's Jesus. It's not like he left us an example for us to follow. Or is it an act of sacrificial worship to make the statement literally and figuratively, that it's not about me. I don't know. Last time we were in First Peter, we talked about the importance of submission. And I know that's a bad word. I know, I know, I know. Trigger. I should have, that's my mistake. I'm sorry. It's a hard word and it's a heavy word. But we talked about that God is asking us to humble ourselves, to submit ourselves before other people. Not because they deserve it, as if they've met some sort of human ideal or they're objectively cute enough that we should forgive them, but that we do it as an act of worship to the God who does deserve it. It's a sacrificial act of love toward God. And I know it's not fun, but if it were fun, we wouldn't call it a sacrificial act, right? I know some people have used that section of scripture to abuse other people or to even talk about, yes, it's a good example of being your best person. You ought to be the best person that you can be. But technically, both of those is still putting the focus on us, right? Instead of the worshipful focus on the Lord. Because remember, the word worship literally means to ascribe worth to God, right? And either of those things, whether we use it to denigrate our spouses or we use it to prop ourselves up and say, yes, this is about me being the best me I can be, it's still all about me. And that's not a good thing. Submitting to God's plan humbly when we do that i know that our gut reaction is often to sit there and go yes it's it's unnatural and and it's 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 me getting away from myself and it's me i i shouldn't be so focused on my own joy or anything i'm i'm a bad person i need to remind myself that i need to beat my no it's saying wait god has a plan and he designed me a specific way and if i trust that he knows what he's talking about and he's given me a flight operations manual to follow. If I follow that, then I'm following mission parameters. I'm following what the hardware was designed for, right? It's not saying, oh, I guess I'll humble myself and I guess I just don't get to have my cookie and I don't get to have any fun, but somehow that makes Jesus happy, so fine. No. If we actually do what we were designed to do, if we're in the zone that we were created to be in the zone for, we can find joy in that because things work the way they're supposed to work. An amazing number of things that people go through in life where they say, wow, 
this really is rotten. I feel empty. I feel messed up. My life is, is in upheaval. Is because some people, possibly even us, have done things other than what we were designed to do. People are in the process of ignoring what God designed us to be and to do. Strangely, even the most secular of us, even the ones that don't realize why it feels so empty, feel tremendously empty instead of feeling joy when they don't fulfill what God has created us to do. And you're not going to be able to do that by trying really, really hard. You're never going to find joy if you just buckle down and work really hard on it because then it's all about you again, right? And it's all about your efforts instead of letting God change you and change your essential natures. Joy can't come from being the best version of you any more than a good foundation can come from being the best broken piece you could find. It comes from getting a, a new piece, a thing that isn't broken. It comes from being changed. It comes from being more and more what God has changed you into being. It comes first and foremost from being humble. Okay, all this is prelude. Hopefully you're in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's pick up where we left off. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, right. He doesn't really mean that. We're like halfway through. But I do have to stop there. Because he does mean I'm finalizing the point that I'm making here. And then I've got, a, I've got new points to make. But I'm finalizing this point, which means we need to back up just a smidge. It's almost like a therefore. But he's been saying, submit for the Lord's sake to your authorities, even the rotten people like Nero. Submit for the sake of conscience before God to your bosses, even the twisted ones, the harsh ones. Submit out of hope for God to your husbands, even the lost ones, especially the lost ones. Submit your very lives like Christ did for the health and the strengthening and the edification and the encouragement of your wives. Submit yourselves to one another. And all this submission at its core is based not on our faith in or love for the people that we're submitting to. Technically, it's not. It's not because they deserve it or we even like them. It's rather based on our faith in and our love for the God who created all of us and gave us an example to follow where we can be in the zone and we can live in joy. So after all of that, all that talk about living such good lives among others that we are ambassadors of the kingdom by our actions and draw others closer to him. Peter says, finally, to close all that out, all of you live in harmony with one another. Literally be of one mind, one heart with one another. Think about their minds and their hearts rather than just your own. Live your life alongside those around you in such a way that the melody of your life harmonizes with the melody of their life. Right? If there are any discordant notes, if you find that, wow, boy, there's just all sorts of problems going on here, in, as far as it's up to you, make sure that those discordant notes come from them, not from you. Because you're still living in a broken world. We're still going to screw things up. But as much as you can, in God's strength and in his leading, make sure that you're not the one hitting the discord. You're not the one with the clashing sounds. And it, you don't have to make sure that everybody does everything the way you would do it. If everybody sings exactly the same note all the time, Brian, is that harmony? No, it's plain song. And it has its own purposes sometimes, but it's not harmony. The idea is to say, my version of this works with your version of this, works with your version of this, and if we have four-part harmony, it's beautiful. And it's supposed to work that way. 
The only way it works that way is if instead of all of us going, well, I think we'll all just fall into that naturally. No. The only way that works is if Christ is directing. It's the only way your barbershop quartet works. As Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Even if that means that sometimes you might have to roll with their crud. I don't know if you're aware of this, but sometimes other people, never you, sometimes other people generate crud in their lives. Gum up the works. Downstairs in the sink, the, the, the sink got gummed up. Your life will get gummed up by, by other people's crud. Not yours, but theirs. And you would roll with it, right? Hypothetically, if your dog urinated on your, on your dinner. You'd roll with it, wouldn't you? You'd just go, well, I guess I'm making a second dinner. Hypothetically, yet. If it comes down to it, if your brother has wronged you, if you can get back at him, if you can revenge yourself for what he's done, if he's done something, you go, I can, I can slap it back on him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? If your choices are revenge, payback, or being cheated, being wronged, why not choose being wronged? Why wouldn't you? You go, but, but I'm the one that's wrong. You go, uh-huh. What does it gain you to get payback? I'm not talking justice. I'm talking revenge. I'm talking payback. Kick me in the shins, I'm kicking you right back. You said something about me, I'm saying it right back. I'm responding in kind. By the way, hopefully the opening illustration suggests often it's unwise to respond in kind, right? Is our Christianity based at its core on getting the earthly justice we feel like we deserve? Or is it at its base, at its core, based on us not getting the divine justice that we know we've deserved? And if we're citizens of heaven rather than this place, if we're just passing through this place, which basis do you want to base your life on? Which, by definition, fits what you were designed for better? Which, by definition, gives you more joy? I mean, logic it with me. Spending your life always focused on how you've been wronged and how you can get payback and how you can get revenge and who did what to whom and who's the victim. Focusing on that or focusing on how do I reach out to that person that's so broken that they're hurting other people? How can I be a light in their life? Focusing on saying, you know what? <laughs> I'm just passing through here and it is not worth that. Which one of those? Logically. Forget theologically. Which one logically will give you more joy in your life? 1 Peter 8. There are 3 8. So all of you live in harmony with one another. Let your mind think in harmony with their minds. Be sympathetic. Literally, let your heart feel in harmony with their hearts. Love as brothers and sisters. Be compassionate. Have a soft heart. Let your insides hurt when your brother or your sister hurts. But it's more than just living in harmony with your brothers and sisters or living in peace within the body of Christ. Because remember, Paul said, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone, even the crooked, the messed up ones, the twisted ones. It's not easy, but as far as it's up to you, try to do that. 
when somebody responds to you with evil, show them something better. I mean, Paul is saying it. Peter is saying it. Remember Jesus saying something about if somebody wants to steal something, give them even more. There's a constant theme, isn't there? How many times does the Bible have to say something before it's true? There's a constant, repeated theme from repeated authors of, wait a minute, why would you be so focused on payback and holding on to what you have here? But he took it, and I wanted it. You are just passing through here. Where's your priority? I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm saying what matters more? And the whole point of the Christian community, when you think about it, is keeping things authentic and holistic and transparent and other-oriented. So I'm not asking you to fake it until you make it. Do not pretend this. Don't ever put a pretend face on. If there has been one consistent, there's a handful of consistencies, but one of the consistencies since I've been here is this emphasis on saying, wait a minute, just be honest. Be real with one another. As I said to somebody last week, I'm not smart enough to remember lies that I've told. I can't, I can't keep that all straight. It's just easier for my simple mind to just say things that are real and true, and I remember those mostly. But live in harmony, and as much as it depends on you, live at peace. Don't fake it. But that means that this isn't, this isn't going to be natural. And you can't fake it, so how do you do it? Peter says, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate. How do you do that? Be humble. It's not about you. That's the core of it. Humble and submissive before God. Humble and submissive before others. Not passive. Not a bone in my body that's passive. Not Passive, not non-assertive, not weak. You're not a doormat for other people to walk on. You're not a victim to be abused. Not aggressive, not non-assertive, assertive. Speak the truth. Do it in love. Don't beat somebody over the head with it. Don't resist telling them the truth because, well, I know. Don't be timid. Step out in, in God's strength, not yours. Stand for justice, not retribution. It might seem like splitting hairs, but it's so crucial to remember. You're not here to get what you deserve. You're here to make sure none of us gets what we deserve. There's a fundamental difference in this. We're supposed to be strong enough assertive enough that we can assert the truth that Jesus left us an example of, that this place is just a speed bump. We're just passing through. So be humble, submitting yourself for God's sake on their behalf to your fellow sojourners. Get past you. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, Peter says, because that would simply be your natural reaction, right? I didn't get what I wanted. But what does Christ say to do? What did he say in the Beatitudes? Back in Luke, he said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Don't do what they do to you, right? Don't be what they are. Did you like it when they did that to you? No, then don't do that. Isn't that what we tell three-year-olds? Why do I have to tell a 43-year-old that? 
Well, she did this, so I well, don't do that. The other political party did this, so I think we need to do the same thing because I hated it, and it's wrong. Then don't do that. Don't be passive. Don't just let people do evil, but make your response an effective one. Don't just punish them, change them. Teach them what righteous reactions looks like. Peter says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, with a good word. And you can't do that in your own strength. It's not just you being a good human ideal, responding to their good human ideal. That never works out well. And even if you could do it, and you can't, but even if you could do it, you would just feel good about the fact that you could do it, which makes you prideful, which means now you've screwed it up again. Just do what you were designed to do. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, a good word. Why? Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing, a good word from God. Give a good word to them. Why? Because you're getting a good, good word from God. That's part of your calling as a Christian. In fact, he's used this word before. Remember back in chapter 2? To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps and what is the example he gave us how should we be living when it comes down to it what are we supposed to be doing what sorts of stuff did jesus say to do when things don't go our way back in luke 6 he said love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who mistreat you if someone strikes you on one cheek turn to him the other also when i read those is your gut reaction to go, yeah, but yeah, not always. I mean, you don't understand this situation. You don't understand this person. You, yeah, but or is your reaction to say, that's true. I might write that down in my Bible. It's in your Bible. Yeah, yeah, no, but I mean, and then forget it on Tuesday. Or is your gut reaction to go, yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. I'm not from this place. And I don't want to react in kind. That's not the correct reaction. Blessed, joyful, Jesus says, are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, and they insult you, and they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. If they reject you because you're a Christian, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Isn't that the same argument that Peter's making here? Are they attacking you? Yeah. Okay. What do you do in response? Bless them. Your blessing's in heaven, not here. Is anything you're doing here to get accolades here? That's not necessarily evil, but it is technically a waste of resources. I'm going to spend 97 hours for 10 seconds of joy. That's a bad investment, unless it's a lot of joy, or unless that joy has very long-range implications. And again, it's, then it's not about those 10 seconds. We spend months leading up to VBS. For one day, no, five days. No, wait, because we hope it's a lifetime of change, <gasps> leading to eternal life. It's a good investment, if that's why we're doing it. But that's the blessing that Peter says. Your reward is here. Your, your joy is, is based on higher things here in heaven, not here on earth. We're inheriting a reward in heaven, a blessing, a blessing from God in heaven, 
a well-done, good and faithful servant in heaven from the God who sculpted you and knows how things are supposed to work to give you joy in life. It isn't necessarily fun to suffer. He's not saying it is. But joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is saying, I'm having fun right now. Joy is saying, I have a, a deep and abiding appreciation about the sense of the rightness of my relationship with God. I have a sense of the rightness of, of my life, about the goodness, the character, the rightness of God. And no matter what else happens, I know my course is just, I know my course is true, and I feel good about it. It's joy. But again, that doesn't naturally come from us. Even us trying really hard can't do it out of our own natural strength. Naturally, if somebody kicks me in the shins, I want to kick him in the shins. Let's be honest. If somebody kicks me in the shins, I want to shoot him in the head so that I'm like, aha, overkill. You're not doing that again, are you? I win. I used to be proud of the fact that I've never lost a fight. I've gotten in a lot of fist fights with, with kids when I was younger and, and different things. Never lost one. I look at it now and I'm like, what are you thinking? You should have never gotten into one in the first place. The wisest guy never throws a punch in the first place, finds another way of doing it. How dumb were you, three-year-old Kevin? It takes some maturation and some humility to say, wait a minute, just because you stole my crayon doesn't mean I should steal your crayon. That's, that's not the reaction. That's not what I should do. You know what I often suggest when somebody is struggling to let go of bitterness against another person? And some of you that I've told this to will go, <laughs> I remember that. When somebody is struggling to let go of a bitterness, I will oftentimes say, do me a favor, the next week, every day, pray for them. And I don't mean a, oh, Jesus, please smite Bucky prayer. <laughs> I mean genuinely pray for their welfare. Not just, I hope... Give them the wisdom to know what they... No, no, just pray for their health. Pray for their wisdom. Pray for, for goodness in their life. You want there to be goodness in their life, right? Well, yeah, okay, pray for that. With no tinge of any of the other stuff. No tinge of correction. No t just pray. It is really hard for you to genuinely care about another human being and be bitter at the same time. It's genuinely hard for you to hold on to joy and hold on to bitterness. In fact, I'm going to argue they're mutually exclusive. Bitterness holds on to the past. Joy says, I have a blessing in the future. Bitterness holds on to, to pain and frustration and focuses on that. And joy goes, why would I do that? Why would I do that to them or myself? That's not what I was designed for. I'm as guilty as anybody of being frustrated and holding on to it. But in my wisest, most mature moments, I go, blah, blah, blah. joy is more important. My witness toward them is more important. I need, to, I need to pray for those who mistreat me. I need to love them well. I, I know it's unnatural, but it becomes more natural the more you do it in your new nature, which means, again, it's not how hard you work on this, but how much you let God work to change your nature to begin with. Jesus suffered on the cross and for the joy set before him, right? All the while praying, God, Father, forgive them. Anyway, Peter says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, an example of selfless humility, not human ideals, but a godly ideal. Ironically, when you strive more and more for worldly goods, we fall 
and fall short and, and feel empty and feel more frustrated. It's when we, in humility, when we, when we let God work in us that we almost accidentally find that we find more joy and contentment, inner satisfaction. It sounds counterintuitive until you remember, wait, I might be getting less here. Or maybe not. Striving doesn't necessarily mean succeeding. But maybe I will get slightly less here. But I'm more and more designed, they're acting the way I was designed to act. I know that the world chafes against you, that you're square pegs struggling against round holes. But it's their round holes. You were designed for square ones. So what happens when you live a life of square holes? What happens when you actually live the way you were designed to live? Amazingly, you chafe less. Oh, well. Don't repay evil for evil, insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing for, Peter says, citing a gut check from Psalm 34, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech, crafty speech, tricksy machinations. Which means, technically, if you even want to find really good life here, don't be focused on here. Even if you want to make this place better, focus on the other place more. David even agrees with him, apparently. Even David says, well, don't lurch toward that immediate gratification of kicking it back in the shins. It gives you a fleeting victory. But find that joy in diving deep in the Holy Spirit working within you and speak like somebody who knows they're just passing through. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from craftiness. He must turn from evil and do good, even if evil has been done to him, right? Even, maybe especially, if evil has been done to you. Right? That's when you have the opportunity to shine. All those movies about violently getting revenge miss this point. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That takes humility, because you don't get to kick them back in the shins, but that's the whole point of this, to humbly submit, to actively seek out peace with others as an act of worship to God. And remember, this is Peter talking. A couple weeks ago, he was whipping out his sword and hacking off body parts, right? But with maturation, he has found wisdom, and he's found some joy. It helps that he had a breakfast with Jesus, and Jesus said, if you love me. It helps that he had Pentecost, where he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And it helps that he was imprisoned and beaten. And then watched the shackles just fall off. And the doors just open for him. Praise God for the suffering that matures. Live in harmony with one another. Seek peace and pursue it. Be sympathetic. Seek peace and pursue it. Love as brothers. Seek peace and pursue it. Be compassionate, humble. Seek peace and pursue it. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but seek peace and pursue it. The, the fact is, if you seek peace and pursue it, you will find it. I guarantee it, by the way. I will absolutely guarantee it. I'll, I'll give you a nickel if you don't. Because I guarantee if you seek peace and pursue it, you'll find it. I guarantee it. 
Because it comes from God, not from your circumstances. So if you actually let God nestle in your heart, if you actually seek joy out, no matter what happens to you and around you, you'll find joy and peace no matter what happens around you. So if you go, well, I don't have much peace or joy. Huh. Are you living a life where you consciously prioritize seeking peace and pursuing that? I bet not. So when people are jerks, don't respond in kind. Don't do unto others what they did to you. Do unto others what you would have them do to you. Don't pee on their dinner just because they peed on yours. And I know, I know, it's gross. I keep bringing it up. It's gross. I get it, I get it. Is it any less gross when we do it? Is it any less gross the tit-for-tat that we do on a regular basis? So if I can get you to indelibly think of peeing on dinner, that when you go, I, ooh, wait, nope, don't want to do that. Good. Because you're just passing through this place. So think like this world thinks, and you're going to be frustrated. Don't think like this world thinks. Don't act like this world acts. Don't respond in kind. Respond with kindness. Change the world in small. But that's all you ever have to do. Because if all of us change the world in small, well, the world changes in big. I need help with this. You need help with this. We need help with this. Let's both try to help each other follow Christ's much better example. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Which side of the stern daddy face do you want to be on? I never, I never responded well to that when I was a kid. But, but that is like, stop what you're doing. Do you want to be in front of that? Sorry. Or do you want to be the one behind that going, yeah. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to to do good, right? Who's going to hurt you? How many fewer battles are you going to have if we consistently seek peace and pursue it? Even Pilate was forced to say, I really don't see any basis to crucify this guy, right? We'll annoy far more flies with vinegar than we will with honey. It's just true. People may still attack us, but why would you give them ammo? Why would you pick a fight? Why do that? Interestingly, I've, I've been part of a couple of online conversations with pastors on InstaFaceTwit this week. Uh, two of them specifically about love. But one of them was about loving people that's hard to love. And one of the pastors finally said, you know, even Jesus couldn't love those people. Sometimes if people are so hateful, psh, he's got to hate them right back so they see what it feels like. Now, you might go, oh, this is a pastor. Have you ever raised your voice against somebody else because they were raising it toward you and you wanted them to feel what it feels like? Have you ever lashed back because somebody was lashing at you and you wanted them to be on the receiving end of what they were dishing out? If you found yourself going, what? Look in a mirror because I know I had to. I had to stop and think about that. I screw this up all the time. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Seek peace and pursue it. How about we actually follow Christ's example and know there was nobody he couldn't love. 
But even if you should suffer for doing what's right, he says. And I love in Greek, this is qualified as, even if on the remotest chance you might even possibly suffer. Come on, Peter. People are suffering right and left for their faith. Can you be that naive? Is he speaking out of naivete? Was he really thinking that you could get through this life without suffering for doing what's right? Of course not. He'd suffered already. I already said he got beaten. He got imprisoned for doing what's right. He got crucified upside down ultimately for doing what's right. This has nothing to do with naivete, but he's like, well, why focus on the suffering instead of on the joy? Why focus on the, on the point of this life and the pains of this life instead of on the calling of eternal life? Why would, why would I do that? Come on, even if you should happen somehow to suffer for what's right, you're still blessed, Peter says, because our joy doesn't come from the circumstances, but from knowing that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And this deep, abiding confidence in the goodness of God and his purposes, from having depth when the oceans churn. You know what happens when a submarine is bobbing along on the surface of an ocean when there's a massive storm and a hurricane? What do they do? They dive deep. You know what the hurricane is like several hundred feet down? It's not. It's, it's up there. When things are tumultuous, just dive deep. Okay. Just do that. Find joy. When Peter was being flogged by the Sanhedrin back in Acts 5, Peter and the other apostles rejoiced because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Not because they enjoyed it, but because they found joy in it. They dove deep, knowing that sometimes suffering isn't an indicator of wrong. It's an indicator that you're doing it right, and you can find joy in that. So don't fear what they fear, he says, quoting Isaiah 8, because he's constantly quoting Scripture. Have you noticed that? He has immersed himself in the word of God so that he keeps bubbling forth. Even when he doesn't straight up quote it, he still alludes to it. But he says, don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. Literally, don't dread what's coming. Focus instead on the Lord who's coming. Because Isaiah says, don't fear what they fear. Don't dread it. The Lord Almighty, Yahweh Almighty, is the one you're supposed to regard as holy. So if you're going to fear anybody, he's the one you should fear. He's the one you are to dread. And yet he's going to be a sanctuary. God's a lot tougher than anyone else. And he's the one fighting for you. He's the biggest, scariest guy on the battlefield. And he's the one fighting on your side. If there's anyone in this equation worth fearing, worth dreading, it's God. But the scariest guy isn't scary. He's your dad swooping in to help you. Not scary. Nodding back to Psalm 34 again, because Peter obviously loves that psalm. He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, joyful is the man who takes refuge in him. So when Peter says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, now that you know that, should change you. You can find joy in your life, even when your life is under siege here. People will attack you in this world. They absolutely will. But the worst they can do is kill you statistically, you're probably not going to make it out of this life alive anyway. But they can't hurt you. They can't break down the walls of God's refuge. They can't hurt you. They can't break your soul. 
The only way your soul is in danger is if you could somehow just get outside the walls of God's fortress. What kind of a numbskull leaves a fortress in the middle of a siege? That's not wise. It would require that you forget that you're on a battlefield. Even if you should suffer for what is right, Peter says, you're blessed. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Holify him. Holify him as your sovereign. How would that make a difference? How would that help you to find joy? Help me out. In times of trouble, who's in charge of your life? Is it you? Your boss? The mortgage company? The oncologist? Who's, who's in charge? Or is it Christ the Lord? When you are struggling, when you're in a big, scary situation, who's in charge? Because if it's the oncologist, that's scary. If it's your boss, that's scary. If it's Christ who sculpted you, oh, then it's okay. Oh, you mean everything's going to work out the way you want it to? No, everything's going to work out the way he wants it to. And I'm cool with that, even if it's not the way I want it to. not a natural perspective and people are going to wonder about you which is why he says always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have and which is why didn't didn't we talk this week to our vbs leaders and say i want all of you to be able to articulate the hope that you have i don't care whether you are working in the kitchen i don't care if you're working as a crew leader with games or a crew assistant somewhere I want you to be able to articulate the gospel. I want you to be able to articulate why it is that you have a hope that looks weird to the rest of the world. And if you go, oh, I don't look weird to the rest of the world, work on that. Always be willing and able to share why you have this hope, this unnatural, bizarre hope that Jesus is actually bigger than circumstance. People are not going to get that, which gives you the opportunity to explain it, right? Which makes suffering an opportunity for outreach. For the kingdom of God, right? Because you have to explain that. Because people are going to wonder why you answer differently. Which is technically the whole reason you're here. Is to be able to share and be an ambassador. So even if you go through a hard time, even if somebody is being rotten to you, it gives you the opportunity to do exactly what you're here to do when you were sculpted to do. And thus find joy that you know that you're doing the right thing for the right reasons. And the whole reason you're here and you're fitting the model that you were designed for. Do you see how this all goes together and works? How do you find joy in the journey? By living the way you're supposed to live. And I don't mean that, like, follow the Bible, thumpy thump. I just mean, just do what you were designed for. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Because if you share the good news with a bad heart, it's not good news. If you're a snot, as you tell people, they're burning in hell, you have not shared the gospel. You've done something else. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And not even necessarily because you like them, but because somebody did it for you. And the person dishing out food said, go tell everybody else. There's plenty. It's about how 
awesome Christ is. And it's an act of worship to God, being humble enough to love even the most repellent enemy so that even our suffering can be an ambassadorship for the kingdom, yielding joy. Which is why Peter can conclude with saying, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Because let's be honest, you're going to suffer. The world is broke. But would responding with evil really relieve your suffering? Will it bring your dinner back? If somebody shouts at you, does it help you to shout back? Well, sometimes it's helping the vent. Most of the time it just turns it up more. Does it bring you more joy? Does it give you satisfaction? Which is not the same thing. You're going to suffer in this world. Anybody tells you something different is selling something. You're going to suffer. It's up to you whether you want to suffer for doing the right thing and making an embassy or you want to suffer for doing the wrong thing just like everybody else in the world. Choose today how you choose to live. I cannot promise you're always going to be perky. I don't even want to promise that you should try to always be perky. But I can absolutely promise you can absolutely always choose joy. Because joy doesn't come from circumstances, but from relationship and trust. Which is why Paul says to the Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. And why Jesus promised us, I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for joy. And joy that doesn't come from perkiness or happiness, but often involves such perkiness and happiness. But joy that comes from being right with you, lived out in this place. So I pray, Lord, help us to have joy in the journey. Help us to love you well and love one another well and live like square pegs in square holes. And if the world says, no, it's a round hole, help us with every word and every action to square off the hole. I give this to you in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.